coming, and uh, this is not to be confused with the second coming of Christ. Remember, there are signs to be, uh, that are going to be fulfilled during the, the tribulation period for the second coming of Christ. There is a distinction between the, the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. But uh, when the rapture takes place and we, the age of grace comes to an end, and uh, immediately after that, um, scholars think that, that sometime after that you're going to have the Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle. Uh, before before the Antichrist. Uh, there are reasons for, for going and putting it in that particular place. Um, and I, I could go into them, but as this is a study on, on Revelation, I'm, I'm not going to get digressed on, on the Ezekiel 38-39 saga. But it, it probably happens immediately after the rapture and uh, just before uh, the tribulation begins. The Antichrist rises up and the first thing he does is what? He signs the, the covenant uh, with Israel and for seven years... And uh, they begin to build the temple at that stage. And that's going to go up like a Makana set. Uh, it's, half of it's already built. It's just a matter of assembling it. So that's when, when the temple will be built in that three and a half year period. But at the end of that three and a half year period, the, the Antichrist breaks the treaty with Israel. It's going to be expedient for him to, uh, to, to break the treaty. And that begins the Great Tribulation. Jesus spoke about this time, the two times in, in the Tribulation. You've got the beginning of the tribulation known as the, the beginning of sorrows, and that lasts for three and a half years. This is not a very pleasant time, uh, as, as we'll see today. It gets really quite heavy, but when the great tribulation comes, it becomes an incredibly difficult time to endure. At the end of the tribulation, uh, Christ returns. Praise God. Are you excited about that, church? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation. We have uh, the battle of Armageddon. The, the Antichrist is defeated. Yay! <laughs> and uh, you know, he, he's uh, dispensed with and, and the devil is uh, cast into the bottom of the pit for a thousand years. And Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom. When the lion's going to lie down with the lamb, it's going to be good. No more dark times. No more difficulty. Jesus is going to be ruling and reigning on the earth uh, for a thousand years. And at the end of the millennium, we have the great right throne judgment. Folks, that's not a judgment you and I want to be at because it's the judgment of the wicked. And it's followed by the new heaven, new earth, and the church. That's the big picture of Revelation. Now, two weeks ago, it seems like a lifetime ago, but we, we saw that the wrath of the Lamb begins. We see the other side of Jesus. It started with the opening of the first seals, remember? And uh, it ends uh, at, uh, in, in Revelation 6, and uh, we, we see the first uh, seal judgments. And the Bible asked the question at the end of Revelation 6, who can stand in the day of the wrath of the Lamb? And there were two groups of people that can stand in, in, in the wrath of the Lamb. The first is the 144,000 Jews, not JWs, but Jews. And then you have the tribulation saints, those that get saved uh, after the rapture and during the tribulation, there are going to be a multitude that come to Christ and they are known as the tribulation saints. And so we, we were looking at that. These are the people who endure the wrath of the Lamb. Then the last time I spoke, we, we looked at the book of Joshua and saw that it was a type of the Old Testament book of Revelation. And uh, just to re uh, review a little bit of what we saw there, we saw that there was a difference between the, the Jewish uh, mindset and the Greek mindset. The, the Jews um, uh, see things in, in patterns. They, they look for repeating patterns and uh, it becomes really important. It's called the, the Mishnaic approach and the Mishnaic approach means repeated instructions. 
So again and again, you look for these repeated patterns. And that's how you do, how the Jews interpret prophecy. Gentiles kind of look at it this way. You know, prediction fulfillment. It's, it's kind of a linear process. And we looked at that, so I won't go into that. And then we, we saw that the, uh, the book of Joshua, how it's a type of the uh, book of Revelation, how Joshua means Jehovah saves. But aren't you glad that Jesus saves? Mm. Oh, okay, it's going to be one of those. Okay, you're going to wear, if I put a word this morning, so do you. We're waiting for oh, you to yeah. get on with it, so come on now. <laughs> so, Joshua means Jehovah saves. Jesus is in the Greek, is Yeshua. And Joshua in the Hebrew is Yahushua. So you've got uh, Yeshua and Yahushua. Their names are linguistically linked. They're almost identical. And uh, they, they mean Jesus saves or Jehovah saves. So a book in the Old Testament with Jesus' name or Joshua's name on it is really important. We need to look at it. We saw that. We saw the other parallels besides the names. That both Jesus and Joshua were military commanders. Amen? Uh, we, we know about uh, Joshua's campaign, but how do you know the Bible refers to Jesus as the what? The captain of our salvation. Mm-hmm. He, he is a military commander, and we see that in Revelation, he, he's marching out and, and uh, bringing judgment upon them. The other uh, parallels, um, both had the same agenda. Both Joshua was trying to reclaim the land that was given to Abraham, and Jesus is trying to reclaim the world for himself. And so we see that, that, that they have a, a, a similar agenda. Joshua's uh, campaign lasted uh, historically seven years, from 1399 to 1406 BC. Interestingly enough, Jesus' campaign also lasts seven years, and it's known as the Tribulation Period. And so we, we see these parallels in the book of Joshua. Joshua, if you recall, sent in two spies into the land to gather intel. And they get to Rahab and they join forces. Uh, they get Rahab to side with, with these people of Israel. Essentially, they witness to her. And she gets saved and she becomes the mother of Boaz, the hero of the book of Ruth. During the Great Tribulation, you see these patterns beginning to unfold. Um, the, the captain of our salvation sends the two witnesses uh, in, which we, we'll get to in a little while. But amazingly, these two witnesses go in and they preach the gospel and multitudes get saved. So in Joshua's day, it was uh, Rahab who gets saved, but when God sends his two uh, witnesses into the world, multitudes get saved in the end time. We saw how there was this pattern in, in the book of Joshua. Remember when they're about to go into the land, God tells them to, to go in and, and walk around the, 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 uh, Jericho, and uh, it was very important that they kept silence. And they walked around uh, one time, and then they'd go back, and the next day they'd walk around again. And on the seventh day, they would walk around how many times? Seven times. So they'd walk around seven times, and on the seventh time, they blew the trumpet and shouted, and the walls came tumbling down. Remember that? God gave a mighty deliverance to them. And so it becomes really interesting. You see the same thing about trumpets, sevens, and, and uh, silence in, in the book of Revelation. First you have the silence for half an hour, then you have the seven trumpets that are blown, and, and that's the repeating pattern that, that the, the Jews looked out for uh, in, in their mindset. Okay, We saw that Joshua's enemies um, unite behind a powerful leader, Adonai Bezek. 
And it, when you look into his name, uh, it, it's the Lord of justice, but it can also be interpreted as the Lord of righteousness. And so the enemies of, of God's people, their leader, Adonai Bezek, really means the Lord of righteousness. But he is the, the Antichrist. Remember, in the book of Revelation, you've got, you've got Christ and you've got the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is trying to duplicate everything that, that Jesus Christ is doing. And so in the same way here, Adonai Zizek is like the Antichrist. Uh, he's the Lord of Righteousness who is defeated. How was he defeated? He was defeated by hailstones. God fought for Israel. How many know that God did more damage than the Israelites did? Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Praise God. You don't want to fight against God. So he goes up there and the, the hailstones that come down. What is it? The sun and the moon stood still in the valley of Ajalon. Wow. Just like the Revelation judgment. There were signs in the heavens and Joshua's enemies hide in the cave. They were sealed by rocks. And ultimately they were killed. In Revelation, the wicked hide in caves and call for the rocks to fall on them so that they die. Pattern. Then we started to uh, into Revelation 8, and I'm bringing it to, to uh, a conclusion now. Remember we started talk, trying to figure out who this angel was, um, who was offering the, the incense. Some said, oh, this is Jesus Christ ministering as the, as the high priest. Others said, no, uh, Jesus is no longer ministering as high priest. He's laid that office aside, and he's become the judge of, of, of the world. And, uh, you know, it kind of, it, they both had really good arguments, and I, I was thinking... That's inconclusive. I hate that. And sometimes you have to settle for it. But I, I, I always dig around and see what else can, uh, can be um, found. And I came across a very interesting word. It's called another. <laughs> very, very interesting. Especially in the Greek. I didn't know that there are multiple forms of the, of the word another in Greek. The two most prominent ones are alos and heteros. And so, alus means another of the same kind. Heteros means another of a different kind. And so we have heterosexual. Do you remember that? It's, it's relationships between a man and a woman of a different kind. And so, uh, it, so these two words become very important. If I say to you in English, go and get me another person. Uh, you don't know whether I want a male or a female. You don't know who uh, I want. But in the Greek, it's a very precise language. And if I'm working uh, uh, with, with a male, and, and I say to you, go and get me another alos, another of the same kind, then I would go and get another man. If I say to you, go and get me another heteros, it's another of a different kind, then if I was working with a male, I would go and get you a female. The Greek is very specific in, in, in distinguishing uh, those two categories. Now this is important because it plays into the identity of this other angel. And so, when, when we look at it, it, is it alas or is it heteros? Because if it's heteros, it may reveal an, an angel, but different to, to the ordinary group of angels. This would refer to Jesus Christ. Or alas, an angel of the same order of the rest of the angels. And that's what you find. When, when you look at uh, Revelations 8 and 3, it says, it talks about another angel, an alos angel. So an angel of the same order of the rest of the angels. This is not Jesus Christ. 
Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be picky over that, if you know, uh, if, you, if you were convinced that this is uh, with Jesus, that, that's okay. It's, it's not, but I, I, I always like to try and scramble around, and, and for me, I'm, I'm now persuaded that this was not Jesus Christ, but another angel. You can have that one for free, is that okay? <laughs> okay. Hallelujah. Okay, so we come to, to Revelation 8, and we have the four trumpet judgments, okay? And uh, the first four trumpet judgments, uh, we're going to move through them very quickly, uh, cover the, the earth, the sea, the rivers, and the air. It's really a devastating ecological disaster when the four trumpets are, are sounded. And uh, we come to what's known or commonly called the judgment of thirds. And you'll see why it's called the judgment of thirds as we go through, because everything is judged by one third. And so we, we pick up the, the account in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 7. Hallelujah. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up. A third of the earth, sorry, a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burnt up. Think about that. New Zealand would look very much like Africa if all the, all the green grass was burnt up and a third of the trees were destroyed. It would be a very different kind of world that we're living in. That's what the Bible is describing. A third of the world is affected, is burned up, uh, a third of the trees and all the green grass. That's quite a fearsome judgment. Verse 8 and verse 9. The second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain, maybe an asteroid of some kind, uh, a ball ablaze was thrown into the sea. Now, remember, the sea is the, the majority of our world. Four-fifths of the, the world is covered by water. And so when, when this uh, 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 mountain, this huge mountain, asteroid, or whatever it is, comes into the sea, um, it, it's a devastating moment. It says, a third of the sea was turned to blood. Man, this is going to be absolutely incredible. And a third of the living creatures died in the sea, and a third of all ships were destroyed. This is a very, very catastrophic judgment that a third of the oceans are destroyed and everything's wrong. Can you imagine what the beaches would be like as, as the, mm. the fish uh, uh, washed up in the marine lines, the, the porpoises and the seals and, and the sharks and all the rest of it are dying. A third of, of, of the animal life in the sea has been washed up on the beaches and it's stinking and rotting. There's no grass, there's no trees. This is a time of a really incredibly intense time. It says, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Do you remember... Uh, I was watching in 2004 the, the, the Boxing Day tsunami, how the, how the ships were just rolled and, and the tsunami just um, bundled, and you saw ships in, in ending up in, co in car parks and all the rest of it. And I, I think that this is going to be very much like uh, that, except on a much grander scale. When the asteroid hits, a third of the shipping is going to be wiped out, possibly by a giant tsunami. So we have in the first four trumpets... Uh, the air has become polluted. The rivers and the seas are all polluted. Everything is dying. The beaches are covered with rotting and stinking fish and other sea life. This is a grim world in which they are living. Revelations 8, 10 through 11. And the third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood. And a third of the water.
turned bitter. And many people died from the waters that had become bitter. It's interesting that God names the star. And I think this, it, that God is trying to draw attention and give a reason for, for the star's existence in the fact, by the fact that he names it. Uh, because none of the others are named. So we, we're going to explore that name and see what we can dig out of that because I think it's very interesting. But again, uh, if, if, you took, if you remember your bitter waters, you've heard that before. There's a pattern here. Remember in the Old Testament when, when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and, and they were going towards the Promised Land, they came to a place called Marah, the place of bitter waters. Remember? And, and they, they, they would die. They, they would have died there because the water was... Uh, uh, you couldn't drink it. And God instructed Moses to do what? To take a tree and put the tree uh, in the water and the bitter waters became sweet. Uh, and it's really a picture of salvation because if Israel didn't get the water in the desert, they would have died. And the, the tree is a picture of the cross. So the entire story in the Old Testament is, is a really pre-shadowing the, the event of Jesus Christ, how uh, the, the cross w would save those who are in destruction. How many would say the cross makes our bitter lives better? Could you say amen to this morning? The cross makes our bitter lives better. So that, that story in the Old Testament is a picture of salvation through the cross. And it again uh, appears in Revelation, the same picture of the bitter waters. For those who rejected God's offer of salvation, the sweet waters are made bitter by the meteor, the star from heaven. For those who rejected the cross, God's salvation, they are not saved and they die at this point. Let's have a look at the insight of that name. I, I, are you with me this morning? I, I can't, uh, am I lulling you to sleep? Or? No. Okay. no. We're just impatient for you to get a move on and, and tell us more. <laughs> okay. So, the star's name is Wormwood. And it's, it's found twice in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 29 and verse 18. And the context really gives you an idea of what's going on here. The context really speaks about Israel's idolatry in Deuteronomy 29. Israel's idolatry. And it speaks about the wormwood in Deuteronomy 29 and 18. Again, in Amos 5, it's the second place where that speaks about And it speaks about the injustice of the Israelites and, and uh, their, their false judgments. And so, this is a literal star uh, containing poisons which contaminate the earth's fresh water supply. The star's name suggests that God is judging the wicked because of their idolatry and their injustice. And so God is saying, because you didn't worship me, this is what's going to happen. And it really is quite indicative of God's judgment upon the wicked. You probably noticed by now how these judgments echo the judgments of God against Egypt. How fire and hail uh, come falling from the sky, rivers turning to blood, uh, darkness covering the land. It happened once before. And, and folks... God is going to reenact the, the judgments of Egypt on the world in the tribulation, except it's going to be on a much grander scale. It's going to be the entire planet that is affected by God's judgment. Revelations chapter 8, 12 and 13. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the, and the night likewise. 
I want you to see something. Remember, these judgments are third judgments. And so, even at this point, God's judgment has been tempered with mercy. Because he is, uh, uh, he is judging uh, far less than he's sparing. So, one-third are judged, but two-thirds are saved. That's an act of God's mercy. What's God still trying to do? He's trying to bring even the most hardened, stubborn, and unrepentant sinner back to Christ. He could have blotted the whole lot out, and he'd been just in doing that. But God in his mercy says, no, I'm still trying to reach the stubborn and unrepentant. Again and again, God is trying to reach them before the final curtain. Darkness is spreading all over the world. Men did not love the light. They loved darkness because their deeds were evil. The third part of the sun, the moon, the stars did not give their light. A third of the world destroyed? Sure sounds like nuclear war to me. Well, the word, the world speaks of that, doesn't it? Mm. Fact, yeah, it does. In fact, um, uh, I'm, I'm told, uh, I, I haven't checked this out, but they say uh, the Russian word uh, for wormwood is Chernobyl. Oh, good. Interesting. Um, but uh, I, I haven't checked that out. I, I, I wasn't going to share that. But that's something maybe you could look into. Um, but, so... We're having this, a third of the world destroyed. That's really quite incredible. Nuclear. Could this be a supernatural judgment of God? Yes, of course. God, you know, God created the heavens. God can wipe them out if he if he wants to. It could be, but it sounds to me <coughs> like it's a nuclear war. Okay. Many commentators, in fact, see that this could be a possibly a nuclear war, a nuclear event. In, in the event of a, a major nuclear exchange, so much dust and debris would be thrown up into the atmosphere as a result of these nuclear explosions that the, the light of the sun, the moon, and the stars would be darkened. <coughs> and so it's quite feasible that this could be a, a, a nuclear blast. Dr. Reagan says that one of today's nuclear submarines carries more firepower than all the bombs dropped in World War II. Uh, what? That's a heck of a statement to make up. This guy's pulling a longbow, you know. I mean, can you can you imagine it? You know. So, I, you remember the, 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 when they, they, the, when the Brits bombed the the, 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 the Mona dams, the, the, the industrial dams in Germany. They invented the bouncing bouncing bomb. That was two thousand kg. It was a mega bomb, two thousand kg, four thousand pound bomb. <coughs> it was called an earthquake bomb. Um, very big bomb uh, for that particular time. But I was thinking about two things. I was thinking about Dr. Reagan's statements that one submarine carries more firepower than all, all you know, the bombs dropped in World War II. Oh, come on, let's look into it. So I did some Googling, and I found the Trident submarine carries 24 nuclear missiles. Every Trident submarine... <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me, not praying hard enough. <laughs> You're just getting too excited. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. Each missile, every submarine carries 24 nuclear missiles. Each missile can carry a payload of up to eight 100 kiloton uh, nuclear warheads. So that, that, that doesn't tell me anything. What, what, what is that? Okay. 
bear in mind, uh, the bouncing bomb is a big bomb of 2,000 kgs. Now we're going to examine it. How, how many uh, kgs in a metric ton? 1,000, absolutely. So uh, you've got 1,000 kgs in, in a metric ton. If you have a kiloton, a kilo is now 1,000 times 1,000. So now you've gone to uh, 1 million tons. Every missile carries 8 kilotons. 800, I think you pardon, 800 kilotons. So every missile is carrying the, the equivalent of 800 million kgs of explosive. 800 million kgs of explosive. That's 30 times the power of the nuclear explosion at Hiroshima. Just wait, please. And every sub carries 24 missiles. That's the equivalent of 720 Hiroshima bombs. Maybe he's not too far off when he says that one nuclear submarine carries more explosive power than all the bombs dropped in World War II. An exchange of this magnitude would cause a nuclear winter with all the dust and debris thrown into the world. Uh, we'd see parts of the, the world beginning to freeze. There'd be a, a global ice age. Um, people would be freezing to death. The darkness and the cold would destroy crops and food production, uh, resulting in starvation. The same cloud that blocks out the sun would be carrying uh, nuclear radiation. And uh, so you'd see that as that spreads across the land, uh, and that possibly explains why it says in Revelation 16.2, tells us about at the end of the tribulation, men will be, uh, have sores that will not heal. Possibly it's radiation sickness. <coughs> Does the Bible say anything about nuclear war? Not in those terms, because that term was only coined at the end of, of World War II. But does it say anything that gives us an indication that nuclear weapons could be used? Does the Bible say anything at all? And there's an amazing prophecy in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 12. And, and there are many different versions, but I, I really think that the, the message um, Bible actually puts it across very clearly. Zechariah 14.12 But this is what will happen to all those who fought against Jerusalem. God will visit them with a terrible plague. How many agree nuclear war is a terrible plague? Okay. God will visit them with a terrible plague. Listen to this. People's flesh will rot off their bones while they are walking around. And their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues in their mouths. People will be dying on their feet. Wow! You didn't know that was in your Bible, did you? <laughs> and so, what kills so quickly and so successfully? Like, I think a nuclear explosion explains it. Okay. Let me give you um, the eyewitness account of the first bomb that was dropped on uh, Hiroshima. And uh, it, it comes, remember, in 1945, the United Gay carried the first atomic bomb, and the tail gunner was a man by the name of Bob Corrin. And uh, after being temporarily blinded by the explosion, even though he was wearing protective glasses, he described what he saw on the ground below. Quote, It is bubbling like molasses down there. The mushroom is spreading out. The fires are springing up everywhere. 
it's like a peep into hell. End quote. You know, the people of Hiroshima, within half a mile of, of, of that bomb explosion, were seared into bundles of smoking char. And at a fraction of a second, they, they, just, they would put piles of uh, ash on, on the ground. It goes on to say, thousands of these small black bundles could be seen on the streets and on bridges and sidewalks. Birds ignited in mid-air and 70,000 buildings were obliterated in a moment. Mankind had just entered the atomic age. The temperature of one of today's nuclear explosions is, uh, is like the, the internal temperature of the sun. It, a, a nuclear explosion will, will generate enough heat about 100 million degrees Celsius. And that's why, that's why your flesh will, will just be burnt off your bones, your, your eyes will be melted in your, in your sockets, Everything, you'll just be a smoking char. You know, it's absolutely incredible. Hiroshima, the, the, the people that were walking, as they were walking in, the bomb went off. There was so much light and heat generated that, that their shadows were actually burnt into the ground. I don't know if you know that, but their shadows were actually are there as a, as a permanent reminder uh, of the nuclear, because they, their bodies absorb some of the heat and the, the ground around it was so intense that where the shadow was, they are permanently etched into the ground. Did you want those they pictures up now? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. You may as well start to bring it up. Just hold it. They died while they were walking, just like Zechariah promised. Isn't that amazing? They, as, as the scripture said, they, 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 their flesh was off their, off their bones, their eyes melted in, in, their, in their sockets, and their tongues in their mouth. Here's a picture of the, of the, the explosion of Hiroshima in Stoney Field. And so this is the, the remains of Hiroshima places uh, are very close to the, the epicenter of where the bomb was dropped. If you move on, you can see, if you look carefully, there's a person mounting a series of steps with a walking stick in their hand, um, and their shadow is burnt into the cement. Here, here are some uh, other ones. You can see where the bicycle was against the wall. Um, bicycle's no longer there, but the shadow is there. Couple of, uh, another one. Here's a, a, an old lady. It's kind of inverted, but you can see her walking upstairs, and she's got her skirt on, and she's carrying a stick. The light and the heat was so intense that that shadow was burnt into the ground. While Zechariah says they will die while they are walking. This little girl was jumping over this uh, over a, a string or something in a hydrant, and the shadow had been burnt into the wall. She died as she walked. Next one, please. They died while they walked. There's that, that old lady. Is this the end of it? Okay. I think it's an amazing prophecy that Zechariah made because if you think about it, it must have sounded utter foolishness to him. Utter foolishness to say your, your eyes are going to melt in your, in your sockets. And your, nothing, nothing. That was inconceivable to, to man 2,000 years ago. But this is, this is the prophecy that Zacharias made. And I, and I think it's a, a, a warning of, of the uh, nuclear age that's to come. In short, the nuclear holocaust described here explains why the living will envy the dead. Men will long to die, but won't be allowed to. Revelations 8.13 says this, 
And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of earth, by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are to sound. In other words, more devastation is coming. In other words, you ain't seen nothing yet. You look at that, you look at the, 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 the potential nuclear holocaust, and the Bible says that there is more coming that's going to be even greater. Jesus' words said this will be a time of the greatest destruction that the world has ever seen. From any time, any age, this is going to be the most devastating time in the world yet. And so we are now seeing the four angels blew their trumpets, and we have cataclysmic devastation, signs in the heaven and on the earth below. The three woes indicate that worse is still to come. We are entering into the second half of the tribulation. You thought it was bad before. Now it's really going to get bad. The first three and a half years known as the tribulation, now the intensity rises. We are entering into the great tribulation. It's going to last for three and a half years. Remember, the church is not going through this. We are the bride of Christ. Our hope is not that we endure these things. Our hope is that we are not appointed to wrath. Can I have an amen? Amen. We are oh, amen. You're very quiet. Amen. Amen. Okay. So we are we are not going to go through the tribulation. The church is raptured, it's taken out of the world. So the things that we're describing here are going to happen upon a Christ-rejecting world. But how do you know that God loves even those that have rejected him? Yes, and, and, and that's the message of the gospel. That's that's what gave me hope that, that God loves even a, a, a reject, retard, uh, uh, unwanted, unloved person like myself. God loved me, and so God loves those and, and, and wants to see them saved. But if they continue to reject, there's nothing that He can do. These three words mark the deepest, darkest intensity of the Great Tribulation period, and generally associated with. Daniel's 70th week, uh, which is at the end of the tribulation. These will be the blackest, darkest days in history. This is going to be a holocaust of unprecedented proportions, like no other. But the church is spared the wrath of God. Thank God we don't go through the tribulation. That's our hope. But folks, just because we don't go through the tribulation, we must warn others. Can I have an amen? Amen. That's the whole reason that we are here. We are here to be equipped. We are here to be trained so that we can tell others about Jesus Christ. And so it becomes very important that we become a witness to preach using any gift. You say, oh, I'm not an evangelist. You know, I, I can do nothing. Well, you ladies, if you can bake, bake a cake and give a tract with it. If you want to sow something for a friend, give a tract with it. If you feel that you can't preach the gospel, give a tract. You know, guys can paint, paint your neighbor's garage. Make sure you get his permission first. Um, you know, or you cut a lawn or something. And give a tract when you do. We've got to do something to, to tell people about Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That's our mission. That's our mandate. I'm going to say a little bit more about that in, in, in a moment. But we have to warn them. We're not going through the tribulation, but we have a mission. Remember what God said to Ezekiel. This is such an important message. God spoke to Ezekiel and, and, and laid uh, something upon him. I'm going, to, I'm going to read it to you. Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 through 5. Listen to what God says. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your countrymen and say to them, 
When I bring a sword against the land, and the people of the land choose one of their men to make them their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, if anyone hears the trumpet but does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes his life, his blood will be on his own head, since he heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning. His blood will be on his own head. If he had taken warning, he would have saved himself. To understand prophecy, we need to understand the patterns. I think that this is no different to the tribulation. God has said he's going to judge the world. The sword is coming against the world. And he has chosen every Christian to be a watchman to tell people about the Lord. Can you say amen? Amen. We have a responsibility, folks. We have a solemn duty, more than a responsibility, a solemn duty to preach the gospel. We've got to tell people about the Lord. However we do it, we must lift up the name of Jesus. It's imperative. Because look at the very next verse that God spoke to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33 and verse 6. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes away the life of one of them, that man will be taken away because of his sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for his blood. We don't go through the tribulation, but we've got to warn people of the dangers that are coming. We are the watchmen. We can see the dangers that are coming. We don't go through the tribulation, but we better be telling people about the destruction and devastation that's coming. Or God is going to hold us accountable for their blood. I don't want to find out what that means. I really don't. Nothing could be worse than for God to pay the ultimate sacrifice upon the cross on our behalf and then for the church to fail to declare it. That would be a travesty, a catastrophe beyond description. These people would die in their ignorance because we have kept silent. God will hold us accountable for their deaths. I'm going to pick up on, on the Great Commission that Andrew was ministering during the, the, the breaking of bread. Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to read 18 and 20. And Jesus came to them. This is to the disciples. Let me pause here. He's speaking to the disciples. We are the disciples of Christ. We are the followers of Christ. Jesus is speaking, therefore, to every single Christian. Can I have an amen? Amen. And he's saying... All power in heaven and earth is given unto me. He uses the word power, and it's the Greek word exousia. And exousia means authority, jurisdiction, or power. And so it, it, Jesus is making a phenomenal claim here. He's saying all power, authority, and jurisdiction in heaven is, is mine, is given unto me. It's a stupendous claim. It's really impressive. If you stop and think about it just for a moment. It says, go ye therefore, and, and, and the, the, the thrust of that is not a request. Let me paraphrase the concept of, of, of that. 
Jesus is saying, I'm speaking as Almighty God, as the one who has all supreme power and authority and jurisdiction in heaven. Therefore, I command you go. You can see that is very clear, that Christ expects the church to go and preach the gospel. Verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have suggested to you. Teaching whatever I have commanded you. In their promises. God knows our, our weakness. God knows our frailty. And he says, I'm going to go with you. I will empower you. I'll give you the strength to speak up and to be a witness. The problem with the church today is we become silent. And I remember listening to something when I was in England. I was changing channels and I, I came across a, a, a gay pride parade. And, and the guy was saying, I didn't know it was a gay pride parade. I wasn't watching um, but the guy came on and he said, he said, silence for the gays is death. And I want to tell you that, that when the church was out there proclaiming the truth, the gays kept quiet in the, in the void that we left of this wishy-washy gospel and, and this lukewarm church where we don't say anything and don't do anything. The wicked are rising. Silence is death. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the world. Witnessing is not an optional extra to your Christianity. It's our obligation. It's our fundamental duty. It's our prime directive. If you're a Star Trek fan, it's the prime directive. Okay, if you're a Star Trek fan, it's the prime directive is to preach the gospel. To tell people how to get saved. Beat me up, Scotty, is the gospel. These people don't go up into heaven unless we tell them how. Amen? So our duty is to know the plan of salvation and to share the plan. And if you don't know it, learn it today. Because we're going to be held accountable. I'm not trying to condemn anybody here, folks. I, I, I come and I share these truths. These are hard truths, but but the truth is that God loves us. And the worst thing we can do is, is, is just shy away from our duty and our responsibility. God will forgive us for the times that we should have spoken up and didn't. I've been guilty of that. There were times when I should have preached the gospel and I didn't. And I think we've all been there. But God said He will be with us until the end of the age. He will strengthen us. He will inspire. You know, the hardest part is starting. Once you start, you find the power of the Lord is there. Amen? When you start to speak, you suddenly find that God shows up when you start to proclaim His name. So, He, he says, I will be with you. I will comfort you. I will strengthen you in order to share the gospel. And if you fail, I'll forgive you. But you've got to get up and keep on moving. Amen? So, I'm not trying to condemn anybody here for their failure. But it's not something that we can ignore. It is our solemn duty as, as Christians to, uh, to witness. It's so important. We cannot ignore that aspect of our Christian walk and think everything is going to be alright. I want to ask you, just as you, you are 
thinking that, close your eyes if you like, but just think, when was the last time you shared the gospel? When was the last time you shared the plan of salvation with someone, specifically to lead them to Christ? Do you remember when that was? Have you ever done it? ever want to hear Jesus say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We must preach the gospel. We must be about our solemn duty. We've got to speak up. Silence is death. God forgive us for remaining silent when we should have spoken up for you, Lord. Give us the strength and courage to speak up. Help us to change and to grow. Help us to be a good witness. Because on this issue, we will be held accountable. Help us all, Lord.